Hello and welcome to Will We Make Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. This is season three, episode two, reducing recidivism through education, science, and nature. Season three is all about the Sustainability in Prisons Project, or SPP, how they bring education and training into the prisons to reduce recidivism and protect and enhance our environment. This season will be six or seven episodes long, and like we said last episode, we're still not sure yet because of ADHD or something. And (laughs) we will be interviewing a variety of people from SPP as well as partners and individuals that have participated in the program. In this episode, we interviewed James Jackson, who serves as an education and reentry navigator at the Evergreen State College. He works to match formerly incarcerated individuals with colleges around South Sound. He shares some of his experiences with the prison system and the importance of education in breaking the cycle of incarceration. We will also hear again from Kelly Bush, co-director of SPP, who will share more about what SPP is and isn't. We'd like to apologize for the quality of the audio recording for James's interview, but we hope that you can listen anyway because he has some great insights to share. Cat fact! Nice! (laughs) Since we're talking about education in this episode, did you know that pet people who have a college degree are more likely to have a cat than a dog? Whoa, fascinating. Right? I mean, okay, this information was from a 2010 study of less than 3,000 households in the UK and was funded by the Cats Protection Charity, so maybe a little sus, but still interesting. Hmm. Does that count as biased then, possibly? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Also, this episode is a little longer than we usually like, so we're going to cut our talking short in order to bring you more from our interviewees. Today we will be talking to James Jackson, the Evergreen State College Reentry Navigator, about our prison systems and some of the obstacles of reentry. Thank you so much for joining us, James. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current work and your path to getting here? I am the Education Reentry Navigator at the Evergreen State College. My position is actually funded through a grant contract with the State Board of Community and Technical Colleges. That funding actually comes from the Department of Corrections in Washington State. This position is not beholden to recruitment for Evergreen. We do recruit, but we recruit students for the college that's going to best serve their wants and needs in the South Puget Sound area. The numbers say it. Formerly incarcerated students getting an AA degree, their chances of recidivism reduces to like 15%. Wow. Students getting a bachelor's degree, that drops to 5%. Wow. People that get a master's degree, it's not measurable. And so education is a proven tool to reduce recidivism, to disrupt that cycle of personal recidivism, but also disrupts generational incarceration because kids that see their parents going to college are more likely to follow that path. Kids that see their parents doing drugs, into crime and everything are more likely to follow that path. And how I got here, I am a formerly incarcerated college graduate. One of the things that guided 
this path to where I am today is my own belief in being transparent about my past and understanding that it doesn't define me, but it is a big reason why I am where I am today, professionally, personally, mentally, spiritually, physically even. And so because I was transparent and really put it out there that I was formerly incarcerated in class, to the faculty, to the community, it opened up more doors for me than it closed. Highline, I had my momentum going in my first year and I decided I wanted to keep going through summer to keep the momentum going. And I went into the financial aid office and the counselor, I told my story and she's like, damn, JJ, you should be in student leadership. And I was like, what? <laughs> They're kind of square over there, right? I'm like, <laughs> but it wasn't that I didn't want to be around square people. It's that I didn't think I would fit in. Yeah. I went for it and that community hugged me in, which enabled <laughs> me to make that paradigm shift from internalized convict to now student and scholar. And that is one of the most important things that needs to happen on these college campuses because more and more students are going to be coming out of prison and going to college and mm -hmm. need a soft landing space where they feel like they're not going to be judged for their past, where they can live transparently. Because what that is for me, being able to do that, it's like a spiritual and mental liberation. Because what we do know is our secrets are what keep us sick. Living in shame and guilt mm -hmm. and to carry that, that is not good for a person's mental health. Being able to operate in your community transparently, it's super important for a person's sustained reentry. Mm -hmm. For me also, it was going into student leadership that my lens for social justice broadened from that of my experience as a Black person in America to see all these other marginalized identities. I started learning about pronouns and the LGBTQIA stuff, and it broadened my lens and stoked the fire for sociology for me. I wanted to learn about these systems, and I believe today that education that I received through sociology, through studying political economy, mass incarceration, now I understand given context to my lived experience. Mm, right. Yeah. So certainly you were starting to get into that. I don't know if you want to talk any more about it, but how your experience with being incarcerated helped shape the work that you're doing. It's really interesting when I think about it because I didn't see any of this coming. I wasn't planning on being in this position. You know, I was planning on when I started school and getting my AAS and personal fitness and going and starting my own business. But that isn't the way that it happened. And so I came and shared my experience. From there, they asked me to come to the state symposium on post-secondary education for inmates. And I went there and I met staff and faculty from Highline. And we decided to put together a task force to bring a reentry program to that school. And we worked on that for like two years. And they hired me part-time as a student that summer between the summer that I transferred from Highline to Evergreen to build the framework for that program. And so that's really how I got into the work quite by accident. So once I realized that I can help other people that were having some of the shared experience that I did with incarceration, with drug addiction, then what else was I supposed to be doing? I feel like this is more of a calling for me. So basically, you just told your story, which I assume must have some obstacles or struggles in reentry. The biggest obstacle I had in my reentry 
was probation. Luckily, I had probation officers in the federal system who, in fact, I eventually ended up working with in this network called Community Partners in Transition Solutions that understood what I was doing and gave me a long leash. But I would say that was the only thing, if anything, that was holding me back. I have to qualify that also by saying that along with the drive that I had, I had some great family support. Do you want to tell us if you had any positive experience while you were incarcerated? It was rough. I was sentenced to 121 months in the federal system. And when I got there, I didn't have any other problems other than anger. I was clean. I didn't have to worry about using because all that stuff is in prison. But that was lifted from me and I didn't have that, but I was still a very angry person. So like the first three years of my incarceration, I did a lot of fighting. So what I know now to be trauma, mm-hmm. a whole life of stuff that led up to this moment where I was incarcerated, what that ended up getting me was a transfer from a yard where they had some educational programs and everything. And we'll probably touch on that to a disciplinary yard where you now have all of the West Coast race politics, the chaos, the riots and all that. And it was there that I realized if I didn't figure some things out that I wasn't ever going to make it home. And so I started working on first humility. This is a process that took, you know, eight and a half years before I was ready to be successful. So that humility, acceptance of responsibility, I have to qualify acceptance of responsibility by saying that people of color, poor white folks have a different set of choices than people with more privilege. And so we have to say that, but that said, for me to heal, I had to accept responsibility for my choices and decisions. Once I did that, it was like a thousand pounds off my shoulders. There was nobody left for me to be mad at anymore. And so I decided to forgive myself and in here and forgive others in my heart and let some things go, which then opened me up to start to learn how to love myself again. I had to do all of these things and they don't give you nothing to do that in the system. And it was because I had some recovery. I had a couple years clean before I relapsed and went to prison. And so I had some tools on how to start to heal and dig in and do that deep work. And what that did is it prepared me to be successful because now I didn't have the number one thing, addiction problems to trip over and this anger and resentment, regret, all these other things that can trip you up. This is continuing work. I have to continuously work on myself or I stagnate. I don't feel good. And like, it's been a rough couple of years with COVID. I think we all feel that for sure. (laughs) So I'm a biracial person who identifies as black. So being a black person in America continuously, but over this last couple of years, that even professionally working at an institution that is in crisis, which has been hard to grow programs and do the things to best serve the students that I work with. Right. When there's just kind of a basic level of health safety that you're trying to maintain right now through COVID. Were there educational or environmental programs available to you when you were incarcerated? There are no federal prisons in Washington state. All we have is a federal detention center 
And so I got sent off to Stafford, Arizona. And at that prison, they have uh, Unicor, which is prison industry jobs. And what they were doing there is they were making jumpsuits for the Navy. They're one of the few federal yards at that time that still had a weight pile. Also had a contract with their neighboring college where they were providing AAs in business and they had some electives. Okay. What I wanted to do when I was locked up was one, not have to ask people for money. My family members not be a burden. And I wanted to get my physical health back up. But in the prison industry jobs to get a better pay grade where you could actually make a couple hundred bucks a month, you had to get your GED. So that's the thing. I was 36 years old when I got to prison. I didn't have a GED. I had some skills that I had learned out in the black market that could be marketable skills mm-hmm. and at times were. And so I had to get my GED to get that better pay grade. So I did that and Miss Henderson, and I'll never forget her name because she's pivotal in my life and where I am today, called me to her office and said, Mr. Jackson, you, you have some really high scores. You should think about these college courses. And I was like, Miss Henderson, I'm not here for that. I'm here to get paid and to get on this weight pile and get in shape. Miss Henderson, if anything, was persistent and patient. <laughs> and I liked Miss Henderson because she treated us like a human. She eventually talked me into taking a couple of electives. Mm-hmm. And I 4.0 in that school building at the prison, it was classroom and the instructors came from outside from the college to teach so we had an actual classroom environment and it's one of the places where I felt like I could just be me and learn yeah so that is where the seeds for education were planted for me but then I got that disciplinary transfer went to Victorville and they didn't really have much going on so do you think you gained an appreciation for what you had when you had to leave it? Yeah, my mind wasn't wasn't working that way at right. that time. And then I also feel that I had to go through what I went through at Victorville to start that road to healing. I never want to say that prisons save lives. But here's what I will say. Me being removed from society at that moment saved my life. Now, is there better ways that we can do this? Yep, there's better ways than just locking people up and then letting them fend for themselves. Because really, I'm an exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling like, well, I call it the perfect storm of circumstances. So age, that anger stuff, family support, just a lot of things aligned so that I could heal. So you were saying that when you left prison, you didn't really have a bad experience necessarily. But did anything in your experience leaving prison make you want to change it? So I don't want to necessarily say that it wasn't a bad experience. At Halfway House, that's probably one of the places where I can say was might have been rougher at times than in prison because I was ready to go. And they had certain restraints on me. And also being in there in the Halfway House, all kinds of stuff is going on, right? roommates that are doing stuff that could get you in trouble. I feel like in those situations, like we're all in there together and we all did what we did to get there. And for me, like I told you, I had grown a lot 
And luckily I did because I wouldn't have never made it through that experience. Right. Yeah. So that growth because I would have just been fighting and stuff. That part of I think my transition was rough, but it was also like an amazing time for me. I'm going to school. I worked at Home Depot part-time. And when I resigned from Home Depot after a year, it's the first time that I ever walked away given two weeks notice on good things with a company. Yeah. I even enjoyed the commute. I'd be on the train, on the bus, and, that, and it was entertainment. You never, I've been away for so long, and people are doing so, so many you know, weird and funny things in my commute that I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't good or bad, easy or hard or any of that. Were any resources provided to you to help you be successful? Do you feel like you were set up to be successful upon your release? I don't think that the system necessarily set me up to be successful. Now, mm-hmm. I'll say that about the feds, the education program at that particular spot. They planted some seeds in me. I qualified for RDAP, which is the drug treatment program in the federal system where you can get a year off if you complete it. I got transferred from Victorville to Forest City, Arkansas. And Forest City, by the way, is a small city in Arkansas named after General Forrest Bedford. Oh, God. Who was the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. And so anyway, in this RDAP program, I was excited for some recovery. But when I got in there, it was a bunch of people kind of just faking it to make it. And so I ended up signing out of that and giving them the year back because I felt like I had to do that to be able to walk with my head held high. And that's crazy when something is so not what it should be that you would give back the prison system a year. Yeah. In the transition, what you can get is lists of resources. Right. You know, I mean, if you're a person that isn't ready or has different mental health things or whatever it may be, even getting connected to those resources can be hard. Yeah. That's true. There's resources and stuff out there that that can help people. But also, we got to remember, a lot of that stuff are small nonprofits who are struggling. Yeah. And so there's not a lot out there for people. Do you have any tools or advice for somebody that's about to be released for prison? Is that part of what you do now? Yeah. It's a hard thing because I get students at all kinds of different levels. And so... About 30% of the students that I serve go on to make it. So it's less than half. Wow. The main two things will be drug addiction and housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If somebody is in recovery and maybe they've done okay, you know, when they're locked up and then they're released into houselessness, now you're in the shelters, you're in that community yeah. where a bunch of drug use right. happens. It's a coping mechanism. Right. To try to help yourself feel better about the situation that you're in. That's a huge issue. My job is to mitigate as many barriers to a student's transition as possible. And it's it's really focused around education. I am not a resource provider, although I will connect students to campus and community resources. What would be the most important message or what do you think it would be important for people to know about the experience of incarceration and reentry that might not be familiar with what that really looks like? 
I think it's the taking away of most of your decision-making power. So you're told when to go to sleep, when to eat, when to shower in a strict way, right? So mm-hmm. Very controlled. Very controlled because of the conditioning that we see from the media. People think that prison is a violent place full of violence and rape. Those things do occur, but there's also love and respect for one another. And there's communities that form because people are, you know, we're viewed as not much better than animals. Yeah. I think that's probably some of the biggest misconceptions about prison. I have a good friend till today that I met in there. and We kind of just kept each other in check and we have a place to vent. Mm -hmm. And I've gone out, he's successful. He drives a cement truck down in Austin, Texas now. And my brother lives in Dallas. So when I was down there visiting, I went and visited my guy, P-Dub, and met his family, his wife, his children. And I had my partner with me. That is the only friendship, though, that I created in prison. Most of the rescue were just acquaintances. Wow. I mean, that is kind of interesting. You would think with just being close proximity for eight years that there would be more friendships, but you're in there for not reasons to make friends, obviously. Yeah. So let's jump back a little bit. You were in the federal prison system, but talking about the Washington state prisons, what are they doing well? In Washington state, I think we are ahead of the curve in prison reforms Mm -hmm. in some ways. And then maybe like in education, we're not as far in other ways. So right now, We have a governor that's interested in reducing recidivism and using all of the tools there is to do that. And the most proven tool is education. This group of navigators, there's no other state doing like that. So what that looks like is education navigators in Washington State. We have 12 in the community strategically placed across the state. And then we have education navigators at all 12 Washington State prisons. I think we're ahead of the curve in that way. Mm -hmm. Nationally, I don't know if you all know this, Pell Grant has been fully reinstated for incarcerated students. So starting 2023, funding will be available to those students. And so the historical significance about that is in 1994, the crime bill that was tough on crime, you know? took away Pell Grants and a bunch of other programs for incarcerated people. So it took away education or retraining. It took away treatment options. Because that's going to help. Right. (laughs) And that's where we see the explosion of mass incarceration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I throw this out there just so people understand that it's a bipartisan issue, mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a huge issue. What are some of the other systemic changes needed to achieve better outcomes for formerly incarcerated people? Some of that's been addressed in Washington state. For example, no felon box on a college application, but they can still do that on housing applications for campus housing. We did a lot of work here to reform our housing policy and our applications to make it more friendly and less stigmatizing. And the legislation gave colleges the choice on whether they want to ask for a student's background for housing or not. 
And if they do, though, they had to stay within certain parameters of what they were asking, which gave us leeway at Evergreen to only ask for somebody who's applying for our housing if they are on current supervision, if they have a sex crime mm-hmm. in their background, if they have a restraining order with another student living on campus. Mm-hmm. And have any of that, it just takes it to another level of decision-making. What we'll do from there is if somebody's on supervision, we'll contact their CCO, so their community corrections officer, and see what they think. Well, first, we'll see what they're on supervision for. And if we can make that decision right here, we're like, okay. And then if we need to take it to another level and get the community corrections involved, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. But if a student has a background and they're not on supervision, they don't have a sex crime in their jacket or the restraining order, then they're good for housing. We don't take it any further. Mm -hmm. I think housing is the number one barrier and people can't be successful. I've had a couple students who are super motivated that have been able to be successful while being houseless. Wow. But more than not, you can't get started. I mean, the amount of hurdles and obstacles that you have to overcome without housing to make anything else work. Jobs would be another pay your bills without a job that pays you well. Other things that people transitioning face, people who are designated with felon status, we basically walk around with a scarlet F pinned to us that relegates us to permanent second-class citizenship. And so in this country, we talk about, well, you did your crime, pay your price, and you can come back. Well, that's not true. Right. In The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, she talks about that, the scarlet F, and how that just reduces a person's chance of climbing the class ladder, basically. You're stuck You're like on the lowest rungs and people a lot of times revert back to survival crimes and stuff like that. So if we really honored the fact that people serve their time and after they're off supervision, then we would drop. That would be the biggest thing because it leads to 48,000 collateral consequences. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. What are some of the biggest challenges for incarcerated people or the prison system? I'm going to start with the prison system right now because The number one concern in prison is safety. And how do we do that or attempt to do that in America? Through violence, Mm -hmm. disrespect, and these other things. And other countries that have reformed their prison systems have achieved that safety through dignity and respect. The corrections officers will go play basketball with the incarcerated people. You would never see that in this country. Mm I'm a prison abolitionist. I mean, I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Yet you might say, oh, well, but you you get funded by the Department of Corrections. So how does that? The Department of Corrections pays me to help reduce recidivism and keep people out of prison and also educate my community. Right. Why wouldn't I do that? I think the biggest hurdle for the prison system is the prison system that locks people up forever, almost. And then you have all of the different race bias and Maybe the biggest challenge for incarcerated people also is rehabilitation, right? Because the system's not really set up for that. And so that has to come from within inside of a person. It was really interesting for me studying mass incarceration as part of my education to understand how the laws came into place that I was convicted under. 
it doesn't make sense unless you're trying to lock up a portion of a country's population. How do language and words play a role in our conversations about incarcerated people? Are there some terms that we should be using during our podcast this season? Are there terms we should be staying away from? We know that language changes culture, right? It's a very powerful thing. And when used in a negative way, it leads to a lot of stigmas and biases. It's so connected to things. So terms like offender, convict, inmate, those terms only do more harm. So we suggest that you use terms like incarcerated person. And what they're moving to in the DLC is incarcerated individual. Mm -hmm formerly incarcerated person, system impacted person, returning citizen, justice involved, you know, for people that may be currently involved in the system at whatever level, instead of putting these different labels, because labeling leads to stigmatization and, and bias and all that. And so in the movement against mass incarceration, we really are trying to change the language. Now that's a place right now where the DOC in Washington state with the new secretary, Cheryl Strange, I'm gonna say she is stepping up in a big way. So for a few years now, the DOC under Steve Sinclair mandated that they stop using those terms. Wow. Still all over the literature and then the culture in the prisons is a us versus them mentality on both sides, right? Of that, it's in the training. Cheryl Strange has actually taken the step to start replacing those words in all of the DOC literature. And I've seen the evidence of that in some of the training I recently had to do. And so that's a pretty huge thing, language, yeah. So if you all are talking about incarcerated people, say just that, don't say offender or inmate, because that's how the system dehumanizes people. But it's also how people doing that work can detach themselves. Right from the humans that they are in charge of. Mm -hmm. Or help think of them as lesser, exactly, a, a way of detaching. Well, it's just beds and numbers rather than thinking about the human. Right. Also, Cheryl Strange, just to give her some respect and just news, had created the division of women's prisons because the women's prisons, we got two in the state, were being overlooked by all the men's prisons. And so now... They have a, a new director of that, and they're going to be getting more of what they need to support those incarcerated women's needs. And it's being led by a woman. So That sounds very promising. I think it's going to be good because she's already coming in and shaking stuff up. How can education and training have a positive impact on incarcerated individuals, those that work with them, and our communities? So for the incarcerated individual, education can give you a little bit of hope in a different way of life, in a better way of life. And it can give you also some belief in yourself. That was my experience. Even early on when I was still corrupted by that anger and stuff, that seed was planted and it gave me, oh, well, I'm kind of smart, right? I learned that I could actually learn. Mm -hmm. That you finally at almost 40 years old had somebody telling you that, hey, do you know that you're actually kind of good at this stuff? I mean, I'm assuming you probably had never heard that before. Yeah, well, I hadn't heard anything like that probably since the elementary school. Right. Wow. For the second part of the question about people going in, what are the benefits? Not everybody that works, corrections officers and some of the counselors have necessarily that 
us versus them mentality, but that's huge in the culture in the DOC. But I think if you go in like a lot of the nonprofits, people like me, the faculty that go in, and maybe you have some preconceived notions of what people in prison are like, but if you get in there and you really work with people, you see that they're just humans, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm maybe due to their circumstances and decision-making ended up in prison. But we also can't ever forget that these prisons were filled up by a manufactured war on drugs, a war against poor people. Mm-hmm. Most of the people in prison are poor, more privileged pay to get out of it. Right. A very small part of the prison population is actually your sociopaths that enjoy killing and crime. Most people were just in there because of the conditions that social economic conditions, their circumstances. Yeah. And unjust laws that put people away. Yeah. Going with an open mind. Right. And I think you'd be pleasantly surprised about the people that, that you meet who are incarcerated in this country. Do you think programs like the sustainability in prisons project are beneficial? Yeah, I do. I think this is an interesting question because you think of programs like SPP, the prison industry jobs, some of the different resource providers. If we didn't have the jobs, the education, the SPPs, then people would just be sitting around the, the units playing cards and getting involved in the politics and the drama. These programs help people get out of the unit, give them something to do for the day and With SPP, you're actually learning skills and knowledge that's worthy of upper division science credits. Mm -hmm. I think they're important. And I think that people who push back against these programs saying that they just perpetuate mass incarceration don't really understand or if they're doing their due diligence, they're not talking to the people who the programs benefit. Mm -hmm. If you could change anything about SPP, what would you change? Well, I wouldn't change anything because that's Kelly's thing. (laughs) Good answer. One thing that I would change for our school is that those incarcerated students and technicians in that program get evergreen credits while they're doing the work instead of having a certificate and then have it go through our certificated learning program to get your credits that way. Right. And it sounds like there is some work on that, right? Yeah, we're headed in the right direction with that right now. Kelly has been working on that for a long time. Now, I think we're coming to a place where the school is starting to see the value in prison education. And I mean, come on, it's evergreen. It's perfect for them as an evergreen graduate. Yeah. I mean, like, I think Evergreen is a great place for formerly incarcerated students because there's so many different ways of getting education. So untraditional that like correct somebody who is motivated can really do very well. Mm-hmm. Ever since I was a student at Evergreen, we as student leaders, as the Evergreen Education Coalition for Justice and All Students, As the coalition, we've been working on a prison education initiative since 2018 and just haven't been getting taken seriously. I call it the bureaucratic merry-go-round. We've missed some opportunities. Now, though, with new leadership, we actually have some traction. We're putting in a big legislative request. If that happens, 
we will be well on our way to having an evergreen prison education program in our local prison. So Evergreen, if you all didn't know, is located geographically. Here goes the mapping stuff for you. <laughs> Within an hour of six prisons, so five adults and the youth Wow. at Green Hill. I did not know that. That's either. crazy. No other schools that are in this area have that strategic advantage for prison education. And so it'll be easy to get faculty and staff out to these places. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to share that we didn't have the forethought to ask today? And you're like, whoa, this is really what they should have been asking me. I'm going to just throw this out. In America, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated in jails, prisons, and detention centers. There's no other country that comes close and... I believe it's China, even China, who has like a high incarceration rate is the last time I've seen the numbers, a million people. Well, when you think of how much higher their population right. is compared to ours, that doesn't speak well to us. We have another 70 million people that have some sort of criminal record. So that's one in three people in this country. Wow. And I believe it, the last time I've seen the numbers, we have another 7 million people on some sort of community supervision. This is all in the land of the free. And so my question to the people is, is this more about race and class or is this about actual crime in our country? Does that mean we're a less moral country or is this a systemic issue, like I said, related to race? Mm -hmm. The answer is it's a systemic right. issue. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to vote for that being the answer. I think that people have to really ask themselves these critical questions around this situation for us to get to a better place. Because even the most left free thinking people are conditioned yep. by this tough on crime thing. And, and that's very evident in this community ever. Mm -hmm. Even in this social justice mecca of Washington State, yeah. there's huge bias and stigma in the community for formerly incarcerated people. And it's unconscious most of the time. Thank you so much for joining us today, James, and sharing a little bit more about the prison system in Washington, reentry, navigation, and uh, your own personal experiences. I mean, I think it's what you all are doing is very important and more people need to hear about the things that we're talking about today. We've brought Kelly Bush back to talk more about SPP. So let's get right into her interview. Thanks for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you involved with the Sustainability in Prisons Project? So as you mentioned, I'm currently the co-director of Sustainability in Prisons Project, or SPP. I've been doing this work since 2010. I first started out as a program manager and then took on the role of co-director in 2017. What benefits do incarcerated individuals get from participating in programs provided by the Sustainability in Prisons Project? We try to bring multiple benefits, including education and training and opportunity to work with science, sustainability and nature hands on, but also some of the therapeutic benefits of connection with nature, education, such as college credits and opportunity to network with other organizations and partners. In what ways are program participants compensated for their work? The motivation for being involved with Sustainability in Prisons Project is not typically the monetary compensation. 
incarcerated people are capped at the amount of wage they can be provided for their hourly work. And so currently that rate is very low. People seek us out as an option while they're incarcerated for the education and training benefits that we provide. What are the impacts of these programs on recidivism? So we are still working to compile our results. Recidivism is typically measured by whether or not somebody has returned to prison within three years of their release. So it takes a bit of time to get a large enough sample size to really speak to our impacts. But we know that at the last point we looked at our data that the folks that are involved in our programs do have lower recidivism rates than the general population that doesn't participate in our programs. Recidivism is a really complicated measure. And so we can't claim that we are the only reason that people's return to prison is reduced. But we do know that, again, the population that works with us does have a reduced chance of returning to prison. Very cool. Yeah. What kind of benefits do you think that the community gets from a program like Sustainability in Prison Project? Well, one of the things that I think is most interesting and that I hadn't really thought about as deeply before doing this work is that prisons are really isolated from community by design, by placement, location, and just the nature of the security protocols to get inside them. Doing this work really kind of helps break down those barriers and makes connection with community. So we bring community inside the prisons, folks that might not normally interact with this population or interacting with them. And I think that that breaks down and helps people address a lot of the bias and the stigma that we may have around work with these populations. So I think that that's one of the biggest benefits to community is that community is investing in this issue that affects all of us, whether it's that you have a family member that's been incarcerated or just that these folks are part of our community as well. And so having that barrier broken down, I think, serves us all. It, it gives us the opportunity to create networks with each other and support each other as community. And then there are the benefits that our ecosystems receive. The fact that incarcerated folks are receiving education and training on sustainability practices and um, environmental practices. And there's the broadening of the inclusion in the environmental movement that we're engaging a population that doesn't normally get access to or hasn't been invited to be involved. And so, yeah, I think that those are some of the benefits. What do you want to make sure people know about these programs and what they're designed to do and kind of what they're not? I guess maybe starting with what they are not. They are not a source of cheap labor. They are not meant to greenwash prisons. We're not here to say that prisons are these happy places because there are butterflies and plants there. The system of incarceration isn't serving us as humans very well. Our system of incarceration in the United States, it's expensive, it's ineffective, and it often leaves people you know, with more issues than they came in with. It's also not good for correction staff. This is a really difficult environment to work in. It's very stressful. They have high rates of PTSD, addiction, and things that they struggle with in, in addition. And so I think we know that this system needs change. And you know, thankfully, we are invited in to bring that kind of change into this system. What I want folks to know is that even though we are having really important conversations these days about social justice and environmental issues, and even these issues around mass incarceration, prisons do still exist. And so as long as there are people inside, we want to provide them meaningful programs that can make a difference in their lives. We want to be part of their network. We want to try to address some of those challenges that they face. And we want to do the same for correction staff. We want to provide them some stress relief in this really stressful environment. And, you know, our goal is to be consistent in our compassion for everyone who's impacted by the system. 
that includes people in the community who may have experienced harm as a result of some of the folks that are incarcerated. We just don't believe that the way to successfully address those harms is our old punitive system. It doesn't seem right. It's not working. What are some of the constraints of the Sustainability in Prisons Project? This system wasn't designed for these kinds of programs or any of the other educational programs that operate within these facilities. And our work is one of many programs that seek to break down the barriers between inside and outside the prison fence and to serve those communities that are living and working inside. So the infrastructure literally isn't designed for it. So their classroom availability is challenging. Technology is challenging in the prison environment. They don't have internet for the incarcerated population. Getting access to computers is difficult. And all that said, I do really want to say that while the evergreen side of the Sustainability in Prisons Project might have plenty of differences with the DOC side, we are still a partnership and they do invite us in. They invite the change that we bring. And together we do figure out how to overcome a lot of barriers. There are still plenty of barriers, but we do figure out how to overcome a lot of them. We don't see a barrier and say, oh, that's it. We're done. We can't go in it. We, we figure out, you know, in the scrappy evergreen way, we figure out a way to overcome that barrier. And maybe this is just a good time for us to mention that we did not end up having the opportunity to interview anybody from DOC for this season. So that perspective is kind of missing from here. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Why is sustainability in prisons a little bit of a misnomer? Yeah, so Sustainability in Prisons Project was named years and years ago, 2003, when Nalini Ned Carney first founded the program. And it's maybe a bit of a misnomer or misleading in that our goal is not to sustain prisons, but rather to bring science and sustainability education into prisons. Honestly, in a lot of ways, I hope to work ourselves out of a job. And this is true, I think, of a lot of folks doing work in the environmental field, too. Imagine if we don't need to worry about endangered species recovery or climate change or, you know, these, these sort of big issues that we're facing. I mean, I would love to be out of a job. I hope that we can continue to offer these programs in prisons as long as they exist, but that we can start to shift this model to be offered in other settings as people are releasing to the community. So I always dream of being able to offer these kinds of education and training programs post-release, but also to, you know, maybe places where people are receiving treatment for addiction or mental health issues or just addressing trauma that is part of what has been leading to prison. If we could flip the model and offer all of this before anyone lands in prison right. as one form of like healing self, knowing mm -hmm. that that needs to be accompanied by a lot of other support around healing, but we really believe in the impact of work with nature for, for healing. The therapeutic The therapeutic kind of, value. Yeah. 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 Very cool. What are some of the overarching parts of SPP? You know, as SPP grew, we found we needed to organize it into a few different program types. I don't know that these program types perfectly explain the scope of what we do, but we do have several different program types that aim to help form buckets that we can put these programs in. The program types are environmental education, ecological conservation, sustainable operations, community contributions, and restorative nature. And so those sort of help us organize the different types of programs. Some cross over and fit into more than one category. Sure. Mm -hmm. Education is at the core of all that we do. It's the aim to have education be at that center of all the programs. And some programs are specifically only about their education outcome for the individual and maybe don't have that broader side benefit of some sort of a other outcome. 
So within those, how many programs are you guys managing? And maybe you could list off a couple of the more interesting ones. Sure. So you asked first about the number. We're working on our annual report for 2021 right now. So we don't have those data for you just yet. But I can tell you that this overall partnership, which includes any science, sustainability, or work with living things happening in our Washington prisons, last year there were about 199, so really close to wow. 200 programs. <laughs> wow. Some of those programs are entirely initiated by the DOC side of the partnership and their other external networks. So an example of that would be community contributions. A prison may receive something like discarded fabric and bring it into the prison and then make quilts out of those scrap materials and then donate those quilts back to a women's shelter, for example. So it's a really cool huh. reuse of something that was otherwise mm -hmm. going to be thrown away. And then this community contribution through helping an organization that could benefit. Sustainable operations are programs that are also led by our Department of Corrections side. Those are programs that are looking at like wastewater energy reduction. So the Evergreen side of the partnership helps support that, but it's really led by the DOC partners who are managing the infrastructure in the prisons. And then you asked about, you know, some of my favorites, the ones, and I obviously am biased in the ones that I'm more involved in, <laughs> but our butterfly program. So we work with the federally endangered Taylor Checker Spot Butterfly at Mission Creek Correction Center for Women. And this collaboration includes lots of partners, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Oregon Zoo, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And then, of course, the incarcerated women that are in the program. And together, we raise these butterflies, and it's been really successful. They receive education and training and college credit for their work. And it's just been a really lovely experience. We also have programs that focus on more of the education outcomes. We unfortunately have had to suspend our workshop series and our summit events, which have been opportunities in the past for large groups of people to gather and to hear from folks that come in from the community to talk on different topics. We had a climate change summit a couple of years ago prior to the pandemic, and it was a completely packed room. And I wow. miss being yeah. able to be in a room with that many people that excited about climate change and learning about that topic. Yeah, It was actually full to capacity and they had to turn folks away who wanted to learn wow. about that topic. And the workshop series is a really great opportunity to invite in people like yourselves, actually, who will come in and talk about what they do out in the community, out in the world, and just to interact with the population and offer some education and, and to interact with them. Mm -hmm. So how are these, and there's so many, obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of different funding sources, but generally, how are these programs funded? Are you guys out getting grants for everything? The Evergreen side of the partnership that leads the environmental education and conservation programs in particular is entirely funded by outside funding resources. So grants, contracts, foundation donations. It is a lot of wow. work bringing in um, the funding. Evergreen doesn't currently provide any direct funding support. DOC does contribute through a contract with them for some of our core operations. They represent about 30, 35% of our budget. The rest of it comes from, as I say, grants, contracts, donations. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's a big lift. Yeah. Do you have staff that manages all those contracts or are they done by the individual programs or do you do all that? 
And this is where the Evergreen staff do help out through in-kind contributions. And so we do have a grants accountant and somebody who helps with the the accounting side of it. Folks that run our payroll do provide really important contributions, right? But as far mm-hmm. as bringing in the funding and identifying funding sources and, and sort of starting those partnerships, funding discussions, it's really myself and a, and a couple of the staff that are on the Evergreen side of the partnership that manage those and bring in those funds. Wow. wow. As somebody who's managed one or two or a couple contracts at a time, I cannot even <laughs> imagine how much work that probably is. Well, and I should, you know, I want to acknowledge too, we have a grants office that definitely provides support. So it's a team, right. it's a team effort. Yes. It's just that the SPP staff on the Evergreen side are the ones to kind of find those, like, where's the potential and how do we develop this? We do the initial conversations to bring those resources to the program. Yeah. Awesome. This is a podcast about environmental restoration citizen science and stewardship, and GIS. Can you help our listeners understand why we would be talking about prisons? Yeah, because in in prisons, I think we've overlooked an entire population of people that are really interested in all those topics that you just mentioned, that want to be involved, that want to be seen as part of that movement, but that have been traditionally left behind for a variety of reasons, right? systemic racism, just a lot of bias around access to education. So we, we want to bring these opportunities to them as well. We know that a lot of the folks that are in prison are incredibly resilient, have brilliant minds, creative thinkers, and we need that if we're to make the kinds of changes we need to make in the environment. Absolutely. And just kind of like you're saying, a different perspective than those of us that are kind of entrenched in it. Yeah. You know, well, that's just the way we do that because that's the way we've been. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, we disproportionately incarcerate people of color. Right. And so Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's the case. And it is part of the reason that we're doing this work is to bring these opportunities around science education, sustainability education to a population that hasn't typically been included. Yeah, that's a very good point, I think. Yeah. What are some of the environmental benefits of the projects? You know, I think any time that we're bringing education to folks, that there's the chance that something, you know, resonates with them and it impacts their personal behavior, impacts the conversations they have with their family, their friends. And so any time that we can bring science and sustainability education into prisons, we have an opportunity to impact the individual, their families, their friends, their community potentially their education path or their employment path. If we don't make these opportunities known and start to increase the representation in these environmental careers, then we can't change who's involved. And so that's a big part of it. Other environmental benefits are the more tangible, immediate things of plants, butterflies, ecosystems, turtles, turtles, yes, yes. (laughs) ecosystems that receive those benefits. But it's even as simple as people even starting to think while they're in in prison about how they're using water or how they're using energy. So these sorts of things have ripple effects is is the goal. Right. Yeah. And what are ways that citizens or scientists might be able to participate in these programs? We definitely accept volunteers. We can use help creating education materials. Maybe as the COVID pandemic hopefully continues to improve, folks can join us in coming into the prisons and building community there. Certainly, you know, by bringing project ideas or partnership ideas is another way to be involved. And that leads really well into our next question, which is how has COVID impacted the Sustainability in Prison Project? When COVID first hit March of 2020, we suspended many of our programs 
especially those where people gathered in large groups. Some of those programs have continued to be suspended. We have, with some time and through careful planning, which has included correction staff and incarcerated individuals as well as our staff, have been able to come up with plans and ways to safely implement programs, especially in those settings where people can be outside, masked, distanced. Our staff, you know, have to follow all of the vaccine mandate, masking mandate, rules within prisons. Even though many of those mandates are lifting in other settings, they are still applied in prisons. And we happily follow those requirements because we know that COVID in a congregate living setting like prison is right. has a huge impact. We really pivoted during the pandemic. We have, as I mentioned before, education is at the core of what we do. We really have used this time. I think if we're trying to find a silver lining to this whole situation, we've really used this time to focus on our education model. We've revamped our education model in a way that I'm really proud of and excited about. And we are developing a lot more education materials that can be offered consistently, that can be offered in a way that I think is even more resilient than our previous model. We've developed materials that can be print, that can be provided regardless of outside experts being able to come in mm -hmm. so that folks will have something to do when and if there are quarantines or outside folks can't come in to deliver education. And it allows us to continue to interact with them. So it's not as though we're just creating some print materials and then saying we're done. Right. But we found, you know, we found... Here you go, you're educated. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, no, it doesn't quite work that way, right? So we're still there as, as support. There are activities included in these education materials so that it's not just dry reading. But I'm excited about trying to make the best of a tough situation. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll say is that we've been restarting many programs, but this is a heavy lift because... We're trying to restart programs under different conditions. There are staffing shortages at Department of Corrections, which makes it difficult for them to support program operation. Certainly, there are continued quarantines and impacts of those. And so all of this, the lesson has been adaptability and resilience and patience, yeah. right? Just continually <laughs> adapting, being patient, being resilient, and trying to have really clear communication about what we can and can't do. And we recognize sometimes... The answer is no, we can't do that right now. And that's reasonable given the circumstances we're all navigating. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. What benefits does an organization gain from becoming involved in these programs? I think the benefits are, are many and that it's work with people and the benefits you gain from making connections with folks that have the lived experience of incarceration and learning from them about their experience serving as a part of their network while they serve as a part of yours. You know, I think also the benefits around collaboration. I think we're a social species and, you know, while I need my downtime and time to recharge and, and you know, have quiet solitude, I also need other people. We're, we're right. social creatures. And that kind of sounding board to bounce yeah. ideas off of. Like, yeah. I mean, my mind thinks it's brilliant, but what does anybody else? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, and it might be that they say, oh, did you think about this yeah. particular thing or that particular thing? And the other thing is that especially, you know, since we're doing this work as Evergreen and DOC at the core of this partnership, but lots of other partners involved, obviously, I get really excited mm -hmm. when we find ideas that seem to benefit everyone. Right. And it's hard to find. Mm -hmm. It's the tricky part of the work is trying to balance and make sure that everyone is benefiting. And sometimes it gets out of balance where you need to pay attention to one part of a partnership or another to make sure that they are truly receiving the benefits of being a part of that. But when it's working, it's such a beautiful thing. And when I think about how we use 
our dollars, whether they are state dollars or federal dollars, or they're just even donations through philanthropy. If we can use a dollar, that same dollar has benefits for the environment, for people, for education, for the workforce. That seems like a, a really good thing. And I don't mean to make it sound like it all works perfectly all the time, right. but that's part of the goal, right? Is that, you know, gosh, if you can be finding these synergies where we can provide multiple benefits for that same dollar right. investment, that feels really good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll be chatting to you again soon. So there you have it. The end of season three, episode two. We hope you haven't felt too incarcerated this episode. Because it was a little long. <laughs> and that we have yet again inspired you to make it out alive. We'd like to thank James Jackson for sharing his experiences with incarceration, education, and his current role as education and reentry navigator. James talked about how education can change lives, reduce recidivism, and break generational cycles of incarceration. So much good food for thought. We would also like to thank Kelly Bush for joining us again to talk more about what SPP is and isn't and how it benefits incarcerated individuals, partners, and the overall community. Please join us for our next episode where we will hear more in depth about some of the great partnerships at SPP. Once again, of course, we're going to be bringing Kelly back because A, she's awesome and B, she knows a little bit about all of this. So we have to pick her brain pretty much each time. We will also hear from Mary Linders, SVP partner and scientist at the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and Carolina Landa, a former butterfly technician with SVP. Episode 3 will be released in two weeks on July 5th, right after the 4th of July holiday, something that you can recover with our soothing voices. That was great math, Amy. The 5th is right after the 4th. Jen. <laughs> Some math I'm really good at, okay? And that's the type of math that I'm talking about right there. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Because if you like rate, review, and subscribe, those are the things that make us want to come back and keep doing more podcasts. Right. Of course, we're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash will we make it out alive? It's really hard to say that without singing it. Until next time. Will, will we make, make it out alive? alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective. Hasta la pasta, baby. Oh, and this is goodbye from Jen the Magical Mapper.